Well, with those words in our mind and our heart, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask Him to attend to our need. Father, we do need You. We have gone to You already this morning knowing that You are a gracious God, that You care for Your people, and that You will continue and faithfully do that to Your glory. And so this morning we, we know that and we can expect that as we open Your Word. Lord, use it in our life to challenge us, mold us, shape us, turn us into the likeness of Your Son, that we would, in fact, know Your grace and know what faith means more and more as we live for You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll ask you this morning to join me and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. As we begin our time this morning, I want to remind us again of the man to whom Luke is writing all of this, Theophilus. Maybe you have forgotten him. Maybe you haven't thought about him often. But we need to remember Theophilus, the the friend of Luke, who he is writing all of this to, with the purpose that Theophilus would have certainty. Certainty concerning the things that he has been taught about Jesus Christ. Luke is saying... To Theophilus, listen, Theophilus, I want you to know Jesus Christ. I want you to, to truly know Jesus Christ. I, I don't want you to have any confusion creep into your mind as to who he is or as to his authority in every aspect of life. I want you to understand Jesus Christ and his authority both in this life and in life eternal. And what Luke writes intended for Theophilus is intended for us with the same purpose, that you and I here would have a certainty about Jesus Christ. There is a whole lot of uncertainty that you find in evangelicalism and confusion even today about Jesus Christ. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, therefore God desires for us to have a certainty about His Son, a certainty about Jesus Christ, and much about that certainty comes from knowing that Jesus Christ has authority. Jesus Christ has authority. The authority of Jesus Christ has been on Luke's mind as he writes to his dear friend, and we have seen it on the mind of Luke throughout our study. We began to hear about the authority of Jesus Christ even back in chapter 4. We saw it on display when Satan had offered Jesus a quick way for him to have victory in the world and have popularity in the world and to have authority within the world All he needed to do was to simply bow down and worship Satan himself. Luke chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 clearly show us that temptation to Jesus Christ. 
And then, of course, Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father. Jesus Christ submits himself to the very word of God and says, I will follow that and I will follow that only. And so Satan flees, the spirits, the angels of God come and minister to Jesus Christ. And after that, Jesus begins his ministry. And in his ministry, he is teaching and he is teaching with authority. And the reaction to Jesus Christ is rather shocking when we see that. Jesus teaches in chapter 4 in the synagogue, and the reaction to the entire place is that he is filled with, or they are filled with anger. He is in his hometown of Nazareth. The people know him, and they are filled with with rage, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 4, all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they rise up and want to cast him out of the city. They lead him to the brow of a hill in which the city was built with the purpose of throwing him down the cliff. Again, chapter 4 and verse 32 says, they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. So many people who heard Jesus teach were astonished. They were awed by what he said, and the visceral reaction of their own sinful flesh was to be angered by what he was saying, even though they had recognized that his words were one with authority, that they spoke with a demand. It was with a word that Jesus would tell the unclean spirits that had possessed certain people to to get out of them and go on their way. And those spirits obeyed him without hesitation. It was with authority that Jesus would speak a word or with a touch, he would touch someone and heal all those who were sick, those who had came to him for their relief. It was with authority that Jesus proved that he was the one who could supply the very most important need of every man who would ever come to him on earth with their need of sin to be cured, and Jesus could forgive sin. Then you come to chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins with Jesus declaring his authority once again. Verse 5, he says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is a statement of authority. That is a statement of rulership. That is a statement of reality that he is in fact God. He is the one who began the Sabbath at the very creation of all of created things, and therefore he is the one who rules over the Sabbath. Man-made traditions do not call the shots when it comes to the Sabbath. And now we find ourselves in chapter 6 in verses 12 through 19. And his authority once again is on display as he chooses nobodies like us. He chooses nobodies like us for ministry service. Let's just begin this morning by hearing these words as Luke records them for us. Verse 12, and it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. 
And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he descended with them and stood on a level place, and there was a great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. All the multitude were trying to touch him because power was coming forth from him and healing them all. As I, as I read those words, you may not have been thinking about the authority of Jesus Christ. However, I trust from my introductory words that you realize that Luke has been highlighting authority all along. Because if Jesus does not have authority then Jesus cannot do what He has been sent to do. Jesus, even in His earthly life, if He did not have authority, could not accomplish anything. And therefore, I want to ask a question this morning as we jump off into this text that maybe you have not thought about in the past. And the question is simply this, where did Jesus get this authority? Seems like a rather ludicrous question to ask Christians. And yet it's a necessary question to ask. Of course, that question is an easy question to answer, is it not? Seems rather simple for us to answer. Jesus himself tells us, from whom he got the authority. It's not recorded here in Luke's Gospel, but it is recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 28, we have those well-known words of Jesus after his resurrection, whereby he says, before he's about to send into glory, he says to the apostles and to the disciples, who were with him, Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Those are clear words from our Lord. They are clear words from God incarnate, letting us know that even the authority of Jesus Christ in His humanity was a delegated authority. Now that, once again, tells us something concerning the humanity of Jesus Christ. It's a mystery that is 
beyond our comprehension, much like the doctrine of the Trinity, and we know it's true, we know it is right that God is one God, yet in every essence He, he exists. He, there are three persons, all equal, co-equal in essence, and yet they're one God. They are not different in any kind of way by way of their character and outcome of nature. And yet here in the mystery of Jesus Christ being fully God, yet fully man in his humanity, we understand something here from this very text in reference to that. And that is this, that Jesus Christ was fully dependent and reliant upon the will of the Father. In other words, in the same way that he was led by the Spirit and submitted to the Word of God when he was tempted by the evil one in the wilderness, so too now in Luke's Gospel to Theophilus, Theophilus, I want you to understand something about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ submitted to the will of the Father In all things he did in his exercise, his was a delegated authority in all things. And so here in verse 12 through 16 in particular, his authority is once again seen as he chooses these men, these nobodies who are just like us. Hence the title, of my message. Maybe you were wondering about why it was titled that way. There's the very reason. These are just nobodies like us. That's the first truth that I want us to notice here is that the exercise of Jesus' authority was fully dependent upon the Father and it's seen in the dependence that He reveals here through prayer. Notice verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Do not miss it. Do not let it slide by. Do not let it be simple upon your mind and heart. This was the habit built into the very earthly life of our Lord. He needed and was dependent upon communion with His heavenly Father. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ in His humanity needed and was dependent upon communion with His heavenly Father. It should not surprise us. It may surprise us, but it should not surprise us that Jesus Christ only does what the will of the Father desires for Him to do, and therefore in doing that, He needed and was dependent upon communion with the Father. Jesus Christ came with a a mission, a divine mission, a a Godhead-counseled divine plan of redemption. He came to fulfill the aspect and reality of which He came to do and die on the cross and carry out the fulfilling of walking according to the law of God perfectly. And yet, throughout all of that, even the short time of His ministry, throughout all of that and all of His life in training up to that point was dependent upon communion with the Father. Back in chapter 4, 
verse 42, it says, And when day came, Jesus said, of course, healed many people. Went to Simon's house. His mother-in-law was sick. Jesus heals her. She serves. All the people are crowding at the door. He's healing all of them. And after that, when day came, he departed and went to a lonely place. He needed communion with the Father. Chapter 5 and verse 16. Jesus again had accomplished much in ministry. Many people are needing to have their ailments healed as Jesus is authenticating the reality of who He is by the miracles that He's doing. He makes this man clean who is a leper. Verse 16, news about Him, or verse 15, news about Him was spreading farther and a great multitude were gathering to hear Him be healed by Him, but He Himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. You ever stopped yourself in your reading of the Gospels or your reading of Scripture and say, why would that happen? Why would Jesus do that? This is the Lord of glory. This is the Son of God. This is the incarnate God-man, why would Jesus do that? Well, Jesus would do that because Jesus understood that if He was going to do the will of the Father in the midst of the people, then He needed to spend time with the Father so that He knew what the Father desired. He needed time with the Father in private. And I don't think we can miss the reality and the implication of that particularly in light of what Luke is saying here in chapter 6. Notice it wasn't a quick moment of praying. It wasn't the prayer often of you and I as we pray for a moment and we move on to something that life has brought into our path. We, we move on in our own strength. We move on in carrying out life as if we, we know what's going on. But we've already talked to Jesus, but that's okay. No, Jesus prayed, notice, the whole night. The whole night. Luke certainly isn't trying to say there's something spiritual about how many hours you spend in prayer, but he is saying that this was prolonged communion with the Father. The whole night, by the way, would intimate to us that he spent potentially 10 hours of prayer with the Father. 10 hours. When I was in seminary several years ago, I took a class on prayer. The professor that taught it was a what we would consider a prayer warrior as we talk about people in our day who pray and pray often. And part of the requirement of that class was that you had, it was required and you had to write a report each week about it. You had to pray for an hour a day. Not an hour by which you would take 10 six minute times to pray. Not an hour by which would you take uh, 10 six minute times or six 10 minute times or 12 five minute times where you'd break them up throughout the day. No, a consorted hour of prayer. You know how hard that is?
you realize really quickly how hard that is, how difficult it is to keep your mind in the place where it needs to go in communion with the Father until you do that. And here is Jesus Christ who spent the whole night in prayer. The Lord of glory spending 10 hours at least with God in prayer. In the original language, it gives the impression that he continued praying throughout the night. It wasn't like he prayed and then went to sleep for four hours and then woke up and said, oh yeah, I was praying. Oftentimes I would find that would happen to me as I was going through that class. It's okay, Lord, I need to pray. My time to pray, you'd pray, you'd think you'd be praying a long time, next thing you realize you'd been sleeping for half an hour. And so then you'd have to come back to prayer and repent and say, Lord, what am I doing? I can't even pray to you for five seconds, let alone an hour. What kind of life circumstance would prompt Jesus to pray like that? I mean, oftentimes we think about prayer and we think, okay, I, yes, there's some deep issue in my life. I, I need to pray about this. This is a very difficult thing. And so we go to the Lord in prayer. And on, on the other things of life, we throw up prayers every now and then. I mean, after all, Paul says, pray without ceasing to the Thessalonians. And we say, yes, I need to be praying without ceasing. So I don't need to have my eyes closed. I can still be communing with God. And that's true. We can do that. What life circumstance would cause or would drive Jesus Christ in his moments to go pray like this. After all, think about it, this is Jesus. This is the Lord of glory in the flesh. What could he possibly need? Why this kind of communion with the Father? Well, the text just simply reveals to us that he had a big decision to make in the morning. He was about to set apart those who would be the foundation of the church going forward. He was praying, communing with the Father about those who would do the work of the ministry. Now, in my mind and heart, as I thought about that, this is both comforting and crushing as I think about it. The comforting reality is this. Jesus is just like us in his humanity, yet without sin. He's fully human, yet without sin. And although he is the God-man, he placed the independent exercise, as it says in Philippians 2, he placed the independent exercise of his divine attributes at the full submission of his heavenly Father. And therefore, Jesus Christ in his humanity needed to talk to the Father to know whom he was to choose. In other words, prayer was everything to Jesus. It was through prayer that Jesus lived to the will of the Father. And it was through prayer that he could say to the people, as John's gospel records for us in John chapter 8, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know this, that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. 
and he who sent me is with me. The Father has left me not alone, for I always do the things that please him. The implication from those words and from the life of Jesus Christ, I don't think can be missed. We, we cannot miss the implication of those words that he speaks. If Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, could not live out his life without communion with the Father, how much more, beloved, must we commune with the Father? If the Lord of glory who was with the Father from the beginning and who condescended and came to earth as a man could not carry out his earthly life under the will of the Father without communion with the Father, how much more do you and I need to commune with the Father here and now? I was reading... Commentators this week, and one rightly said it this way, what folly it is if we frame our lives with prayer as window dressing, but do not really pray. What foolishness it is for us to just frame our life as if we're praying when in fact we're not really ever praying. What a crushing reality. And what is crushing from the clear implications of Jesus being this way in prayer is to realize that far too often, far too often, we engage in some kind of obligatory prayer or some kind of routine, rote kind of prayer, but we do not exercise dependent prayer. We do not take to heart the words of Jesus as He's spoken in John chapter 15 where He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. Jesus exercises authority, but it's a dependent authority. It's a dependent authority. He goes to the Father to pray. And because it was a dependent authority, therefore, secondly, it is an effective authority. It's an effective authority. Verse 13 says, And when day came, He called His disciples to Him, and He chose twelve of them, whom He also named as apostles. Why did Jesus choose these 12 men listed here for us in verses 14 through 16? Why did he choose those 12 men? Because it was the choice of the Father. This was the sovereign choice of the Godhead by design and according to his time. Begins with a boisterous, out in front, mouthy, somewhat, sometimes arrogant man who who denies Jesus and ends with one who blasphemes and turns in Jesus Christ 
under arrest as a traitor. All by design, all according to the divine sovereign choice of the Godhead. In fact, in the ministry of them that would follow, surely, surely they would need to remind themselves that they were carrying out that for which God had put them into place to do it and not themselves. Surely they would have to remind themselves that, hey, in this ministry, in what I am doing, in what God has called me to do, in the ministry that I have, whatever that may be, God put me here. It was not me who put me here. And therefore, in all of those times, even to the point where all of them find their demise in death at the hands of wicked men, they would have to remember it's God who put me here. Jesus chose 12 men. That number matched the number of the tribes of Israel. Jesus would send them out as ministers to the nation of Israel. And when Christ ascends to heaven, they would be witnesses to what Jesus Christ had said and what He had done. They would be leaders in the Christian church And some would even be carried along by the Holy Spirit to give us the very Word of God that we have right here now sitting on our laps. This was the will of the Father. And we know all of them by name. Their names are listed here by Luke. They are listed three other times in the New Testament. They are listed in Matthew's Gospel. They are listed in Mark's Gospel. And they are listed once again in Acts chapter 1, albeit without Judas. And because of that, we know them by name. But when Jesus chose them, they were unknown. They were nobodies like us. All except Judas Iscariot is from Galilee. Judas was not from Galilee. He was from the southern region. And so all of them were country boys from the north. Four were fishermen. One was working for the government who oppressed Israel. He was hated by his own countrymen because he was a tax collector. Nobody was noble. All of these original 12, not one of them was from the religious elite. Only Paul, who came later as an apostle, untimely born, as Paul even says, was from the religious heritage. No priest, no scribe. They were just common, uneducated men. Nothing exceptional. And we cannot let it miss our notice. Don't let it miss your understanding as you think about ministry, as you think about evangelicalism today and evangelicalism as the world has gone on and will go on. Don't let it miss your mind and your notice as you think through this text. The effectiveness of gospel ministry, the effectiveness of gospel ministry does not hinge on a crowd It does not hinge 
on a few fallible people, all effectiveness in ministry hinges upon the God to whom we go to in prayer. There's no crowd, there is no might, there is no military power, there is no personal popularity, there are no human relations campaigns that Jesus is setting in motion here, just nobodies that He chooses after a night of prayer with God the Father, nobodies just like you and me. We sit here today and we think from a human perspective, that is nuts! That's crazy! The entire success of the future of gospel ministry after Jesus Christ leaves the earth is to hinge on a handful of faithful disciples. What if it fails? There's no other plan if it fails. There's no second strategy. There's no B team. There's no secondary team. There's no contingency plan set in motion. Why? Because God the Father would and God the Father has superintended it all. And the ministry of the gospel and God's church doesn't fail. Why? Because God doesn't fail. All authority is Christ's authority. Christ does not fail. Now put yourself in Christ on the cross when God crucified Jesus Christ. There's no way that if you are in Christ and Christ died for you that you could ever get out of that because Christ never fails. So here are 12 Verse 13 tells us they were called, chosen, and named. They were called by God. They were equipped by God to do the work of God. Despite all of the difficulties that they would face, despite of any great persecution that would come, despite the martyrdom that they would face in the future, They carried out the task before them. Seemingly against all odds, the world might throw against them, and they entered into glory as victors. Why? Because of the authority of Jesus Christ. And now, here we are. Here we are over 2,000 years later. And we are a living testimony of the wisdom of God's divine plan. And all who will follow in our steps are are part of the testimony of the wisdom of God's plan. A testimony of the authority of Jesus Christ and the exercise of His power and grace. So part of what makes this section of Scripture so compelling to us, or what ought to make it so compelling to us, is that just like us, we sit in awe that God would use nobodies to do His work. Somebody asked me recently, 
why would God save me? The simple answer is because God saved you. Because he did. But I'm not worthy to be saved. You're right. What do I get to offer to God? I don't know. I don't know, but God saved you. And God is going to use you. Why? Because you're like them. You're like me. You're a nobody. People of faith. That's what we are. Just people of faith. We have faith in Jesus Christ who called us to go and to be a witness of Him in all the earth. It's what we are. So we sit in awe that God would use any of us to do His work, don't we? We sit here this morning, and you came here this morning and thought, well, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to be with the people of God, and and man, I don't know what's going to happen to me. And here you are sitting knowing that God has chosen you, God has brought you into His family, and He is equipping you for the work of ministry. Why? Because you're nobody like us. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been called and we are being equipped and have been equipped for the work of the ministry. We cannot forget the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29, he said this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh should glory in His presence. I'll tell you why God chose you. Because God wants glory. And He chose you so that you would realize you didn't choose yourself and you say, God did it. Well, how did all this happen in the ministry, whatever that ministry may be in your life? God did it. It wasn't me who did it. You see, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is describing us. He is describing himself. He is describing these men here in Luke chapter 6. No nobility. No mighty men. Just simple people equipped to do a great work. This is their call to apostleship. And notice, notice, beloved, that it comes during days of hostility. Luke says in verse 1, and it was at this time that he went off. It was at this time. What time? It was a a time of hostility. It was at that time, the time when Christ was opposed by most people. He was calling and he was appointing these men at this time. 
At this time in the ministry of Jesus Christ, it was now time to prepare his official representatives. His execution is just a short time away. He, he knew that was coming, and so he chooses 12 to do in the world what he had done and what he could not physically do when he was ascended to glory, and so he indwells us. He chose them to carry out the work of the ministry. And their training would be short. It would be intense. And yet, by human standards, they were nothing special. That's what encourages me. It ought to encourage all of us. No one special. Look at these names. There's no one special in this group. They're not priests. They're not Pharisees. No one from the religious establishment. Country boys, fishermen, backwoods guys. That serves as both an encouragement and an indictment. An encouragement to all of us who are nobodies, an indictment upon those who are part of the religious establishment of the day. Jesus is formally turning his back on them. And he's choosing from among the people. The religion of human achievement hated that message. The religion of human achievement wanted to be included. They wanted to be a part. They, they wanted to be seen as the choice. They hated what Jesus offered. They turned their backs on the repentance and forgiveness that he brought. Even though he had proved that he had authority to forgive sins, they turned their backs on that. They rejected that. That's the time in which Jesus is involved in here. It's the the time of great hostility against him. This is the time he would choose men and he chooses nobodies. Luke says here in verse 13 that he called, he chose, he named. He called, he chose, he named. Make sure that we mark that emphasis in our own hearts. Make sure that you do not miss that. He called. He chose. He named. They didn't choose. They didn't decide. They didn't assume. They didn't wake up one morning and decide to be part of Christ's team. They didn't do that. Jesus chose them. It was God who singled them out, not only to be in His family, but also with what duty they would carry out within the family of God. We could say it this way. This is not a call by Jesus Christ for volunteers. Jesus Christ was not asking 
from the group of disciples that he summoned to the mountain. Notice verse 12 or verse 13. He came down when day came. He called his disciples to him. Notice that is a larger group than the group of 12. Disciples are just followers of Jesus. In John chapter 6, there were thousands of those that came to Jesus. Disciples, followers, those some who were attached by the fringes, who just wanted to be part of the crowd because something was going on. Much of those was that case because even in John 6, Jesus challenges them and says, you're after the wrong thing. You're not following me for the right thing. You want me to do this morning what I did for you yesterday. You want me simply to fulfill your earthly desires. I'm not here for that. You need to be after the bread of life. And all of the people left him. And so Jesus turned to the 12. John chapter 6. And he says, are you going to leave me too? And of course, Peter makes that great statement. Where will we go? You have the words of life. Jesus Christ is not asking for volunteers. He's not asking if he could get some who would raise their hand to follow Him in a special way, this upcoming ministry opportunity. And and what came out of that was this list of 12 names. It It wasn't because they were somehow intrinsically qualified for the task in and of themselves. It wasn't because they were overtly gifted for the task. We know that's the case. One was a betrayer of Jesus. They were simply like you and I. God chose them from the other nobodies in the group. And it was Christ who made them qualified. In fact, the original language indicates that it was He Himself that called and He Himself that chose. After a night of prayer with the Father, he was executing the will of the Father by choosing and calling. You say, well, well, wouldn't it have been better? Wouldn't it have been more effective for God to choose those who are already gifted? Guys who who already had the ability, guys who were were gifted in that way, those who already were intellectually astute in whatever it was, those who already had some kind of influence and inroads. Wouldn't it have been more effective that way from our perspective? Oftentimes that's how we think. We think pragmatically. We think, oh, the end will justify the means to that end. And so, hey, this is what we want to do. And since we want to do that, let's find the quickest way to make sure that happens in an earthly way. This is what's happened over evangelicalism through the years. And you even see it happening now with the whole wokeness getting into the church. Hey, if we can just get them into the doors, maybe we can, we can come around the backside and, and share some truth to them, and maybe that God will use that. It's not how God works. God chooses the lowly. God chooses those He needs to humble the weak of the crowd so that there's never a question 
It's never a question as to whose power and authority made it happen. It's always the power of the Word of God. It's always the power of the call of Christ that changes a life. It's never someone who changed their life. It's always Christ that does that. If it's real, if it's genuine, it's Jesus Christ. We know people can fake that. Judas is clearly testimony to that. It's not the instrument that God uses. It's the God who uses the tool that he picks up. This is always how it is. Those first 11 became great preachers and teachers. Their names are written on the foundation stones in the thrones of heaven because the power of the Holy Spirit was at work in them not because they were something special in and of themselves. God chose them. Why? Because it is God who chose. Unsophisticated, working class, nobody's like us. Nobody's in the eyes of the world, but God chooses the foolish things to put the wisdom of the world to shame. You know why that ought to be an encouragement to us? Because God's favorite instruments are people like us. And that encourages me because that means God uses me. No glory for us, all glory for God, because it's God who does the choosing. None of us volunteer. Now I want us to to turn for a moment back to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 3. Because Mark's Gospel tells us what he chose them for. It's a threefold mission that he gave them. Mark chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It says, And he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that they might that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons so here is the threefold mission first he chose them to learn he chose them to learn verse 14 and he appointed 12 that they might be with him Before they could ever do the work of the ministry or do any work of ministry, they needed to learn from Christ by being with Christ. That's not just proximity around Him. That's being with Christ and learning from Christ. This is always essential for ministry in the Christian life. doesn't matter what it is. We must be with Christ. It doesn't matter what level of ministry it is. It doesn't matter if you're behind the scenes, if you're just raking rocks in the parking lot. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You have to spend time with Christ. If we have not spent time learning from God, then we have no business being in ministry for God. Well, the apostles needed to be with Christ. They needed to learn from Christ. Secondly, they needed to leave Christ. Verse 14, and that He might send them out 
to preach. When I say leave, I don't mean leave him spiritually. That's obvious. They left him in the sense that he sent them out to do the work. That's a a proximity reality and the exercise of what they had learned from him. And what was that work specifically? To preach what he taught them. They were sent out to preach. It's the word for proclaim. Proclaim simply is Keruso, the speaker of the message. They were the proclamators of the message. They were official representatives of Christ in order to speak his message. That means they didn't get to just say whatever they wanted to say. They didn't get to modify it in any way they wanted to modify it. They didn't get to adjust it in some way so that it was more palatable to the ears that didn't want to hear it. They didn't have any option to do that. They were to go out and do what he told them to do verbatim. They were ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That's why he chose them. It's the only reason He chose them. He didn't choose them for any other reason. He chose them to be His ambassadors. Now listen, each and every one of us who is a true believer, each and every one of us who knows Jesus Christ by faith because He chose us, we didn't choose Him. He didn't choose us because we were special. He didn't choose us because we were worthy of choosing but simply because it was His will to choose us, and He chose us in order that we might proclaim the gospel to a sinful world. Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Listen, beloved, that's why we're here. That's why we're here for a time. We are aliens and strangers upon this world so that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us, as Paul said to the Colossians, out of the domain of darkness into the domain of His Son. There's no other purpose we have on this earth other than to be reflectors of the message and character of Jesus Christ shining through us. We're like the apostles in that way. We learn from Christ as we commune with God, both in prayer and through the study of His Word. And we leave Christ to spread the message. And then thirdly, we love like Christ. We love like Christ. Now there's a bit of a divergence here between the apostles and us in verse 15 because Jesus appointed these twelve that they might be with Him, learn from Him, that He might send them out to preach to have authority to cast out the demons. That's the divergence between all of us as Christians and the apostles. We are all called to love like Christ, just like them. That's what the gospel message does. We go out and speak the truth in love to one another, to others. We tell them the gospel. Sometimes that loving message doesn't feel too good to those who don't want it. But none of us have the authority to cast out demons. That's unique to the apostles. They had the unique power to perform miracles that continue, that confirmed and authenticated their message. We don't need that. Why? We have the Scriptures. 
We don't need the message authenticated. You are the authentication of the message of the gospel. You are a new creature in Christ. You were dead before, now you're alive. What authenticates the gospel more than that? Here's what the writer of Hebrews says about the message of God. Warning that we pay attention to it, right? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Because if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received its just recompense, then how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it, that is the gospel, was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Who is those who heard? The apostles, the disciples that Jesus chose out of the group, these twelve. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Jesus preached the gospel. He equipped others to preach the gospel. God authenticated that message through His apostles as giving them authority to cast out demons. The New Testament shows that it was only the apostles and a few others who were close to the apostles who had the power to do miracles. Others tried to do it by way of trickery and they were called out. I think that's exactly why Mark says here, in verse 16, he, he begins in verse 13, and he went up to the mountain and summoned those who were with him wanting, and they came to him and he appointed 12. And then in verse 16 says again, and he appointed 12. I think there's a reason why that's repeated there. It's repeated there to let us realize and understand, listen, it's not more than 12 that can do this. It's not more than 12 that have that authority. It's those 12. So professing believers today can never go out and rightly try to claim in any kind of way they have the power to cast out demons and do miracles like we read about in the Scriptures. That's nonsense. That's heresy. They do not. No one does. Watch silly TV programs and YouTube videos and all other kinds of nonsense like that. And other people read books and say all kinds of things and they say they can do those kind of wacky kind of things. It's not the work of God doing it. So here is Luke, or through Mark, telling us that we are called to learn from Christ like the apostles. We to leave with His message, and we love others as Christ's message goes forth as we give them the gospel. Go back to Luke. Luke lists their names. A couple of sets of brothers. Others we know little about. Some fishermen, a tax gatherer, political zealot and even one who would betray him. Nobody noble in the world. No one considered wise by the world. Nothing special. All chosen by God simply to do His work. 
What do I want us to go away with this morning? Simply this. This is us. This is us. Look around the room. This is us. Chosen of God. Nobody's fully dependent upon God the Father just like them. Jesus' authority is eternally effectual. His sovereignty calls nobody's like you and I. And we are called to do His will. And He equips us to do that and to be with Him forever. Why? Why? Because all authority in heaven and earth is His. It's His. Therefore, nothing makes sense other than complete, humble submission to Him as we prayerfully depend upon Him for everything in life. Nothing else makes sense. Let's pray together. Enough said. Father, we know that we are nobodies. None of us are special. None of us are anything without you. And our effectiveness in whatever it is you have allowed us to be involved in in ministry doesn't depend upon us. depends upon you. So Lord, forgive us for not coming to you, spending time with you. Forgive us for not those prolonged times in the secret place where we just commune with you. That we might know you that we might know Your will. We open Your Word and we, we hear You in Your Word, speak through Your Word. Not mysterious things, not new things, but what Your Word says, what it means by what it says. We are strengthened by that. We are equipped by that. We realize in that that we are nobodies. And that you receive all the glory for whatever happens. Lord, help us. The power of your Spirit as we walk humbly with you to, to submit, to, to do what you ask of us, to be fearless and courageous, always preaching to ourselves that we stand in Christ, not in ourselves. Lord, move upon the hearts of each one of us here to really take these things to heart, begin to apply them even in the smallest of ways in our life, that we would be like Christ. And others would see the gospel in us, maybe even ask us, why do you have hope? We could tell them. We could tell them it's not because of us. Because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He died, paid for our sin. We have relinquished trying ourselves to gain righteousness. We have turned to Christ. He has opened our eyes. He has forgiven our sin. And we have life. All we want to do is glorify Him. 
Help us do that just as you have done. And we'll praise you forever and ever. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.